Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I talk to Michael Spencer Brown, the man who might be the most traveled man in the world. He's been traveling for 30 years. Crazy, huh? You thought I was crazy. This guy is a lunatic. We talk about Antarctica, Saudi Arabia, Kazakhstan, and why did he go for months without speaking? Why did he buy $50,000 worth of wooden chickens? Check it out. You'll enjoy this episode, which was sponsored by Tour Radar. Go to tourradar.com slash wanderlearn. They are a fantastic resource for anybody who wants to take a tour anywhere on the planet. They've got tens of thousands of tours available, and the best thing about them is that it's like a marketplace, and you can pick your travel style, you can pick your region, let Tour Radar do all the rest. Go to tourradar.com slash wanderlearn to get your chance to win an amazing contest. And now, enjoy the show. Mike Spencer Bound. How are you, Mike? Doing pretty good. Just got over jet lag. I'm back in Canada. A lot of people will make like a big deal. You're like, I'm Serbian. I'm Croatian. Like, big fucking deal. Ooh. You know, like, and, and then they talk about like, wow, you know, I'm a Australian versus New Zealand or something like that. Big deal. DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo versus the Republic of Congo. Like, ooh, no, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So then all of a sudden, the Canadians will say there's a big deal between the United States and Canada, but I'm always imagining the Congolese saying, there's no fucking difference. You guys are all the same. Yeah, they can, they can barely tell, actually. And even experts on, on language can have trouble with it because the, the linguistic and cultural um, areas run north-south. So you have like the similarity between people in Maine and Nova Scotia or like um, Ontario and people just across the border, like in Detroit and stuff like that. Whereas Canada kind of runs east-west. But the culture runs north-south. And, and here's another thing that I found when my travels that a lot of people say that America is like the most patriotic co- country ever because, you know, we're waving flags all over the place and, and we're super patriotic. And yet when I travel, I almost never see an American traveling with an American flag somewhere on them. And yet Canadians will often have a Canadian flag somewhere on their backpack or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm old enough to know that kind of how that thing started. And it was a little bit cheesy because some, the federal government was saying Canadians aren't patriotic enough. We should make some advertisements on television to make them more patriotic. And it was for their own advantage in trade negotiations and things like that. And I thought, well, this will never work because people aren't so stupid to fall for jingoistic advertising. <laughs> but the thing is, they ran these things for a couple of years. And then afterward, like, I hear people talk like, yeah, yeah, Canada, let's put a Canadian flag on it. So, you know, advertising works. Wow. Wow. So um, so what about you? Since you've traveled, how many states have you been in the United States? I think I have not been to all of the ones in the middle. But I think I've been, you know, I've definitely been several times down both sides. I probably haven't spent as much time in Texas as would be ideal. What about the provinces of Canada? I mean, I don't even know how many provinces you guys Yeah, have. they change it a little. I'm not sure if they're calling that Northwest Territories. They split it and made new to us. Yeah, but I, I've been okay. to I've been to all the provinces and I've been a little bit up north. But but how many provinces are there anyway? Fourteen? Uh, no, there's not as many as that. I think it's it's probably uh, I'm not sure the number. Actually. You don't even I know. Can, I'm not sure the number, but I could list them all because I've been to them all. I'm going to revoke your Canadian citizenship <laughs> right now. <laughs> if you met an American who didn't know that we have fifty states, we would execute them right there. Yeah, but I could I can name all the provinces, <laughs> but I'm not sure how many it is. Especially because once they started okay. changing it. You know, I, I was less interested in memorizing a number. 
because they started splitting okay. up some of the northern stuff and um, calling some of them. I'm not sure if they call them provinces or have another name for them. But it's like for me, though, I'm not as interested in jurisdiction as much. Like I see borders more as a barrier that I'm trying to get through rather than something to exalt in. Because you have certain people who are like, oh, I got the stamp for this or I went into this area. And I'm more interested if there's something actually different about the area. Right. No, that's very that's very true. And that's kind of what I get passionate about. Now, you are indeed an incredibly well-traveled man and perhaps, perhaps the world's most traveled man. In yeah, fact, that's the title be, yeah. of your book. It, yeah, the title of your book that uh, you wrote a couple of years ago is The World's Most Traveled Man, A 23-Year Odyssey. Yeah, no, I was surprised to see that title because you probably know a little bit about books and they consider the title to be advertising. So I submitted a manuscript called, I think I was suggesting a few names, like one of them was Big Planet and a few other things like that. And then the book came out and it was called The World's Most Traveled Man. I'm like, okay, well, I guess their advertising department thought they could uh, make some money off it. And I guess some of the Canadian media and some of the British and a few others were calling me that, but I'm not sure what metric they use because I know how lazy journalists are too. So there could be, like for me, like I've traveled for 30 years nonstop backpack and I've seen all the countries and most reasonable non-countries. I mean, I know there's some little tiny things that are, you know, maybe some Dutch anarchists set up something in a river, you know, these, these kind of things, right, that they call a country, but no one else agrees. I mean, I, I've been to most of these things. And uh, so depending on how you define travel, I could be the most traveled man. But I've noticed, like, online, a lot of people define travel as quickest. So that would almost make me the least traveled man if you're using that definition. Because there's a lot of right. contention online about people who I'm the youngest and fastest to see the world. Like I did the whole world in a year or two years. So they're, they're really going off speed. And in which case, they're massively right. more traveled than me because I've been, I've been immensely slow. I carefully and slowly do each country. Right. And then there's other another. I know at least two people who are one of them is in the process of doing it and very close to finishing if he hasn't finished it already. But to travel overland without actually taking a plane. So there's at least one guy is Graham Hughes, I think his name is. He's a British guy. And then another guy is I think he's Dutch. His name is Thor. Anyway, and he's in the process of going to all the countries without taking a plane, which is not a speed thing, which is closer to what you like mm -hmm. to do, um, which is more slow and deliberate and that kind of stuff. But it's still. Uh... But yeah, my problem. So I'm not I'm not against that, but I consider it's a little bit of a gimmick. Like for me, the travel is enough. So. So, for instance, like when I heard about that guy who walked the Amazon, he said, I'm the first guy to walk the Amazon. I thought at first he was joking. Right. And I thought, well, what's he going to do next? Like canoe the Sahara? <laughs> Because like, right. like walking the Amazon is not the natural mode of travel for the Amazon, but right? you, you should go down by boat. And like for the Sahara, you should go by camel. So it's just, I think it's weird when someone adds in, like I'm doing it all by walking. And I'd say that's great where walking is appropriate. But sometimes you're in areas where walking is the inappropriate travel, like for instance, going down the Amazon. So, you know, I don't know, don't know how much I would want to stick to a gimmick. Like for me, just traveling to do the traveling is the, the primary thing. Right. And, and, and how do you define actually visiting a country? Um, because some people, everybody has a different definition, not everybody, but there, there's what, what, where do you say you draw the line? Well, I like to see a country enough that when I'm talking to locals that for most locals, they say, Oh, wow, you've seen more of my country than I have. And then I think, okay, I've done a pretty good job then. And usually I just return to a country until I reach that point. Yeah. Now, now almost all countries I've managed that for, I'd say I haven't for Saudi Arabia because I had so much trouble uh, getting time there. It was immensely expensive and difficult, but I noticed they just opened up for proper visiting. And I always wanted to see that thing that's like Petra, but it's in Saudi Arabia. And I couldn't get to see there because of time and visa constraints. And they really make it hard to travel there or they used to. 
but now they've opened up. What year did you go? It was 2013. So it was quite hard. Oh, wow. So relatively recently. Yeah. And they were, cause I couldn't get in before. And then they were, they were feuding with Canada as well. So they really restricted where I could go. Though oddly enough, they made a mistake on my visa and they called me Muslim. So I could have gone to Mecca if I wanted, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but uh, I couldn't go and visit the archeological sites. And it, it was a little bit disappointing. You know, I, I saw some things, but uh, not as much as I would have, but now probably when I, I'm going to go out to Afghanistan soon again. And I'm probably going to stop in Dubai on the way there. So I might, I might pop in and see that Saudi Arabian thing. It's quite easy now to do. Wow. No, I, I'm excited. I've heard that they've, re- I heard at first they re- relaxed the restrictions and then they tightened them up again. Hmm. Well, apparently they're very loose now. So I'm seeing some stuff come across my Facebook feed of people saying, I just applied and, you know, I can go almost anywhere and they're letting me in. This kind of thing. Wow. Wow. That's huge. Cause that's actually my next big trip that I'm trying to, go to is West Asia. So, and so West and Central Asia, basically. And, and I would love to hear some of your experiences in those two regions, because that's kind of worth what's next on my radar. Um, when was the last time that you visited those, uh, West and Central Asia? I've been in there. Okay. It depends on if you're calling, uh, because I was in Turkey just to, I guess that's that's West Asia, yeah. Yeah, and I was kind of like, sure. I think it's, my it's not Europe. Turkey trip. <laughs> the only thing I'm missing for Turkey is I've never seen Lake Van. I was close to it, but I didn't actually go to oh, see okay. it. I'd never even heard of Lake Van. Oh, that's the that's the um, lake with the cats that are white, but they have like one blue eye and one uh, brown eye. Like they're van cats, and they live around there. I've actually yeah. seen some of them in Bolivia, oddly enough. Like there were some starving van cats. Uh, I was in. Did they come from Turkey? They must have done. And the, the owners of this fish restaurant had them just there living in the alley. Like they weren't even taking care of them. And I think they didn't know that these were extremely expensive van cats. Like the, oh, the Turkish owners will guard them from theft, right? Because they're, they're quite an expensive and sought after cat. But there they were in Bolivia now, somehow. I imagine that Eastern Turkey, which is like Kurdistan, I guess what you would might call it, yeah. um, is is completely different planet from the western side of Turkey. Yeah, it's a lot of stony plains, and like it, it gets really um, sleety with with snow and cold in the winter time. And it, you can see like fields of grass and stuff like that. So it's a little bit unusual compared to the rest of the Anatolian plateau. Very very early in that year, so I, I come through Iraq, the Iraq border, and I just finished being arrested by the Americans, but they let me go. Why were you arrested? I was in um, Iraq. I was hitchhiking around Iraq, uh, viewing the Americans battling the Iraqis for domination of the countryside. And what year was this? This was like late 2003, early 2004. So it was the... Oh, right in the, the hot period. Yeah, it was yeah. The, the Operation Iron Grip phase of the Gulf War. Got it. And and you were just going there because you just wanted to check it out during the wartime? I, well, I heard there was a Japanese guy who managed to zip across the country really quickly traveling at night. And I said, how did you get in? Because I can't seem to get the visa. And he said, I bribed my way in. And I was like, ooh, okay. So at the time I'd been in Iran and I was with this uh, photographer woman who was trying to do, she was trying to photograph the underground party scene of Iran. So I was going with her to pretend to be her husband so that she could um, move around more easily. But also I was like going off and exploring things. And I met this Japanese guy saying he'd just come across to Iraq. And I've been trying to swing that, but um, unsuccessfully. And it was hard to get the documents and stuff. And then he told me, you can just bribe your way across. How much did it cost? One Jordanian dinar. Which I have no idea what that means. It's like more than a dollar, I think. It's just over a dollar. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Just to get in. Yeah. <laughs> and the bribe wow, actually. Wow, what a too- bargain. That's like like a lot cheaper than the actual official visa, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Much cheaper. And then mainly the bribe was not so much to get in as to avoid the, they were just letting anyone in. The bribe was to avoid having to take an AIDS test at the border. 
Yeah, so they, they still had this Saddam era thing where they were freaking out about AIDS. I mean, same thing with um, Libya when I went there. Like, I was stopped by soldiers in the street, and there was actually a whole, like, checkpoint of them. They're pointing guns at everyone in the car. And they said, get out and take an AIDS test. And luckily, I kind of suspected there was something like this going on. So I'd had an AIDS test previously in, um, where did I get it now? I think I got it in Yemen. And I had uh, a document with photos of me, and it's all written up in Arabic saying that I already been tested for AIDS. Because I didn't want, like, some dirty AIDS needles, like, poking into me to do a um, AIDS test in, in some sort of military encampment in the Libyan desert. Because, you know, they might be like, right. oh, we found you don't have AIDS. But now you do, <laughs> since we used this needle on the past 20 people to come through, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so they, to avoid the AIDS test, you pay the Jordanian dinar. Interesting. That's fascinating. I've never been tested for HIV forcefully. You know, I've always done it voluntarily. I did. And you would think that they would do it much more in Africa because there it's the biggest, you know, the, an enormous problem on the continent. Yeah. But, but the, the whole thing of trying to test and like assuming that foreigners were going to have it, I mean, it's quite ridiculous because, you know, as we all know, it's usually the, the taxi drivers or the drivers who are local who have it. Because, you know, in Africa where like I hitchhiked all around Africa, like the same as you have done all 54. And you know how you're hitchhiking and like several times during the trip that the guy is taking you on, he has to like change his clothes, run into a brothel and then run back. Like the guys who drive on the roads are like nonstop brothel users, like addicted to it. So if anyone's going to have AIDS, it's going to be the local guy, not necessarily the foreigners in the car. Right, right, right. right. But they have this paranoia about this. Um, what? So getting back to the definition of like countries themselves, like there's, I think it's called this, is it the Century Club or something like that? Have you heard of this? I heard of that a long time ago and I kind of looked up the rules for it and it seemed kind of lame. So they were talking about landing in an airport and then like marking it off like I've been there. And I thought, okay. I, I, maybe, maybe that was the methodology. I can't remember. Maybe, but maybe that was just the early methodology, think... but it seemed to me like a, a club for people who fly on airplanes. Okay, it could be. I, I, frankly, I haven't even looked at it myself, but what I was more interested in is in their definition of kind of like travel. In other words, uh, what are the check boxes? They start off, they say, okay, not just the United Nations, but also territories. And I think the list, I could be wrong about this, but like 323 yeah. territories. See, I, I see that like as that. just like someone's personal list. And sometimes the one who came out first with a list is somehow has more prestige over the ones who came out later. But I think anyone can sit down mm -hmm. and draw their list. And for me, I wouldn't right. necessarily be trying to put like semi-autonomous regions of countries, even though I go to them. I don't consider that that's important as things like, um, like imagine you've seen all of all the political divisions in South America, but you've never been to the Amazon. Right. So, you know, then I think you're really missing something. Or sometimes there's like sites that are so important, they should probably go see them. Just, uh, just tourist sites like Machu Picchu or something. Like everyone should go take a look at that. And right. Especially because some right. of these things, if you don't get a look at them now, you won't be able to in the future. Because the prices are going way up. I mean, you probably heard about Komodo Island now. It's, it's uh, incredibly expensive to go see the Komodo dragons. I've heard of that. How do you know how much it is? I think it's in the hundreds of dollars or over a hundred dollars. Wow. Well, I know for sure with the gorillas also in Rwanda and and, and uh, Uganda, the gorillas cost at least five hundred dollars. Yeah, I, I paid a thousand to see them, and these prices are not going to go down because you know, yeah, Africa is going to go to four billion people, and they're getting quite rich, and they probably want to look at their gorillas as well. And then there's all these like Chinese and Indians are traveling now; they want to see them, and there's a limited number of these gorillas. 
So I can imagine the price going up and up. I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars eventually. You're absolutely right. It sounds crazy to say that now, but I'm sure that if you told people twenty, thirty years ago that a gr- seeing a gorilla would cost a thousand dollars when it used to cost ten bucks, <laughs> they'd be like, "You're crazy." Yeah, I know. And if you go back even further, you just see gorillas walking by. You wouldn't have to pay anything. Right, right, right. Now I've I've only been to 122 countries or something like that, and I've been wondering like what it's going to be like to actually go. Because for my for me, I would like to go to the 193 countries on the United Nations, and, and I'm sure. But my question is, is like what happens, Mike, when you reach that point where you've hit all the countries? I've always wondered like, will I then want to do them again, or will I want to? Will I will I be bored ahead of time? I don't know. How does it feel? In other words, once you get there, you're like, all right, great. I'm going to kick back and relax. Well, it felt pretty good to get them done. But I had so much media to do that I was kind of busy. I didn't really have time to talk about it because I was doing nonstop media for months after that. Okay. So was it because your book had just come out? No, I didn't what? have any book. It just like somehow I went viral because I'd gone viral before when I visited uh, Somalia. So the, the media had been saying I was the first person to go as a tourist to Somalia. Was that in 92 or 93? Uh, no, it was um, quite recently. It's probably like 2010 or something like that. Because I guess it... What? Yeah, because a lot of people have gone to Somalia, but not as a tourist. I see. Yeah, okay. and in fact, I didn't see any other tourists there. So, yeah, of course not. Yeah, and the media thought it was yeah. quite funny, so it went viral. For- and and by the way, when you say Somalia, I assume you're talking about Somalia proper, not Somalia land. Yeah, not Somalia land. I mean, everyone's been to Somalia land, right? Right, 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 right. So Somalia proper... Right. Now, when you went to, because I was, I really wanted to go, I was on my quest to go to Africa. I was trying to climb the tallest mountain of every African country. And the tallest mountain of Somalia is in Somalia land. And so, and and it's near Puntland, which is in the kind of Northeast corner, as you probably know. Yeah. So I had to cross all of Somalia land and get near the border of Puntland to climb that silly mountain which is not that tall, by the way. Um, I think it's a thousand meters or something like that. And I had military escort the whole way. The But I've always been curious to check out not just Mogadishu, but the areas around Mogadishu. Did you get a chance to get... I assume you I went saw, to Mogadishu. I, yeah, but I assume you... Mogadishu. At the time, it was completely besieged. And there was um, tank shells firing, like whistling past and uh, constant sniping and, and fire, almost like trench warfare. And the, but what were you doing? You're just sitting in your hotel, just listening to this bubble rock? I could do that, but then the Somalis, you know how the Somalis are, you always pass it off to someone who's responsible for you? Well, unfortunately, <laughs> they were so good at being responsible for me, I didn't get much danger out of it, I mean, other than just being there. Because if I want to go somewhere, they would provide a car, and there's like soldiers in the car, and it's also the windows are tinted so no one can see who's in there, and they're driving on right. a few roads that they control. And they were right. in my hotel room. There was tons of armaments, so you know we had access to rocket propelled grenades and like um, medium machine guns and things like that. We were expected to help defend the uh, hotel, of course, if it got attacked, which happens quite often, <laughs> at least at that time. What are they going to? They're going to give you a pistol or something? <laughs> well, they, they had like um, you know proper assault rifles and stuff like that. So you know I had access. But to- did they actually? They didn't actually give it to you. Right? No, it's just like there's rooms full of weapons all around, and there's a. a Oh, I see. Quite a lot of armed guards. Like there, I think there was 45 armed guards. So if maybe one of your guards got shot, you had to pick up his rifle. Yeah, well, there, were, there was extras as well. So I think if, we're, if there was a massive attack, you know, it's expected the guests would help out as well. But I was the only tourist there. I mean, there was a couple of Americans, but they looked like experts on fortifications. And I suspect they worked for some sort of security agency associated with the United States government. And there, were, and there was a, a few other people. There were some journalists, but they were Somali journalists. 
So yeah, there was, it's not really a place. I think there was a guy there selling weapons as well. I mean, there, people don't go there as a tourist normally. And I think that's why the media thought it was quite funny. Now, would you get onto, if you had a chance, and or let's say it costs, I don't know, a reasonable amount of money, let's say, I don't know, ten, twenty thousand $20,000, Canadian, of course, um, to fly to, let's say, the moon uh, to go, or maybe Mars, maybe let's call that, 20000 uh, and 5000 for the moon. Would you go? No, I don't think so. No. Why not, you pussy? Come on. I just think that there's a, <laughs> I'm not sure if it would be so interesting for me. Like, imagine how uh, how seasick you'd be in space, right? Like I'm reasonably yes. good at avoiding it, but uh, I'm I'm about above average. You know, I've I've never been more than three weeks at sea, but still, you know, it's not too pleasant. And from what you read about uh, astronauts, some of them, like people who only have average ability to endure seasickness, where would be feel seasick the whole time. And you're getting a lot, lot of radiation uh, as well, so I'm not sure if it's worth it. I want to yeah. see that the technology got a bit better. Maybe they get better drugs for seasickness because I think they wouldn't even take an astronaut who would who would be only average in terms of being able to resist it. You should be one of these people right. Well, there would definitely be there. There would definitely be extensive training, I imagine, in preparation. Yeah, like that. Before that, you um, get to just billionaire go. guy Tito, I think he went up and did right. Training. Dennis Tito, first tourist. Yeah, he paid twenty million bucks. Yeah, he was the first tourist to, to go up there. But but he definitely went under extensive training. But I imagine that with space tourism taking off, they will start to shorten the amount of time you need to train. So I'm sure Dennis Tito will be the, the most well-trained tourist ever in history for space tourism. And yeah. and in about 50 years from now, people are going to get the one-day course, crash course. Yeah. I mean, I think for low Earth orbit, there'll probably be a lot of people doing that. But I wouldn't mind, right. you know, if they could have, make a proper starship or something and, and go and actually visit things, I might be into it. But as it is now, when you I'm, say actually visit things like what, like, you well, know, if you could actually fly off to Mars and actually get out in a suit and look around, that'd be more interesting. But I think that I'm going to miss the opportunity for that. You know, everyone talks about it's only a few years away, but I've been hearing this space travel stuff for quite a while. I know that it always takes longer than uh, what you think. So I'll probably be too old by the time it comes around. I mean, I don't doubt that maybe SpaceX could accomplish it, but I think I'll be too old by the time they do. Right. Right. But so you would, you would jump on the opportunity if somehow they shielded more of the cosmic rays and they allowed you to have like a nice walk around on Mars. Yeah. Yeah. Probably I would then. And assuming I had the money for it. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm yeah. kind of a low budget okay, traveler, so I don't, I don't really have like hundreds of thousands of millions or 10 million like Tito <laughs> or 20, whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when, uh, I'm trying to imagine myself as you and like, I've done all these countries do you want to go back to some of the places that you already visited or did you want to say, okay, cause obviously you, you haven't visited every square centimeter yeah. of this planet, not by a long shot, I imagine. So there's probably lots of places you could, you could still go to that are maybe countries you've already seen, but just territories. Yeah. Well, I tend to mostly, I'm looking for value for money now. So that's why, for instance, I was just in Ukraine for a few weeks. And it's because you get European quality, but for half the price or a third the price. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's so true. A third trip to Bulgaria as well. It's because I, like, I've done two trips to Bulgaria, but it was freezing rain the first time. And then like a cold front came in with a lot of blowing snow and wind the second time. So finally, I, I made one where I had like proper weather, you know, nice and warm and, uh, in the summertime. So sometimes I'm just looking at my experience of a country and trying to optimize it. Usually I've been to three or four times or more to in a lot of these countries. Like when I did Turkey, I think it was number eight or number nine. And I'm not sure if I can do Turkey again, actually, because I found the visa for a Canadian was quite expensive. 
So they have an e-visa thing now and the price has been creeping up and it's at $165 now. And I remember when it was almost free, I think it was $10 or $15 at the border. And it's been going up, 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 up. Now it's 165 and I've already seen it eight or nine times. It's a nice place, but uh, that might be the end for Turkey now, unless it comes down to zero. Right. Which is highly unlikely. Yeah. And then I did, I did Georgia again. So sometimes these little weather, uh, weather things can spoil a, a trip or limit a trip. So if that ever happened in the past, I would try to go again and get a proper look at a country. What about, let's say, places like the North Pole or the South Pole or the top of Everest or I don't know, these, these other places like that? Some people call them the three, the three poles. Well, I've done Antarctica quite extensively. Now, as for the pole, that's just a, like a marking on a map. So I'm not as interested right. in that because I don't see anything like culturally special about that. But I did go in and see right. like various scientific stations where they were, um, you know, studying penguins and seals and things like that. A lot of interesting. Right? So tell me about your experience in the Arctic. Cause I've heard that it's inc- extremely expensive. Well, I got up there. So, to- sorry, not the Arctic. Sorry. Antarctica. Sorry. Oh yeah. It was expensive. Yeah. I had to go onto a ship that was like a research ship and they were going around visiting various scientific research stations. And it's very expensive to do. Whereas the Arctic was much cheaper because I came up, my biggest experience with the Arctic is coming up through uh, Yakutia. So in Yakuts, they have like Yakutia, the city. And if you go north of there, you can just get those normal, like little Russian four-wheel drive vans. And I went very far north. And then I found a Yakuti tribe that were reindeer herders. And I managed to just hang out with them. They drink a hell of a lot of vodka. But, you know, I had a strong thumb for it at the time. So I learned how to ride a reindeer sled. Just a, a skill I've wow. never used again since, but uh, yeah. <laughs> and I only crashed it once while it? drunk, so <laughs> I think I, I was fairly good. I had the knack for it, but yeah, it's way cheaper. What's it to with? Work. It just seems yeah. like it. It seems like people who are in the northern extreme latitudes they tend to drink a ton of alcohol. Yeah, I think it maybe it gets a little bit boring and bleak there, so you have to brighten things up with the shots of alcohol. <laughs> I guess so. But my most drinking um, was I had a, a Kazakhstan uh, girlfriend at one time, and she took me to visit her family. So I was sitting around in the yurt with her, and her like grandmothers and other like elderly relatives were all clustered around me, especially the female ones. And they were insisting that I eat lots of this powdery, incredibly potent cheese that was even way stronger than Parmesan. And then also these green onions that they picked somewhere off the prairie. And then horse meat sausages that are wrapped around the ribs of the horse. And after each little bite I would eat, they'd pour me a shot of vodka. So it's, you know, typical of the Kazakhs of like, boom, 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 nonstop vodka. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking about uh, Kazakhstan, uh, what did you think of Kazakhstan in general? I mean, it's a big place. I was there six times total. And I think I I saw most of it. I kind of found that the mountains near Almaty were more interesting. The Astana, the capital, is sort of like one of these cookie-cutter things that have just been made by modernizing presidents. Where they, you know, I don't think there's too much to see there. But in the far north, when you're coming up near that Shambhala mountain, it's quite interesting. So Uskamenogorsk or north of there or the, the places around where they did all those uh, nuclear bomb explosions. What about your language skills? How do you deal? I imagine you speak French because you're Canadian. Well, okay, I'm a little bit too old for that because I was way out west. So I, when Trudeau brought in the uh, um, French language teaching, there was unavailable teachers. So my younger brother, who I'm visiting now, his French is very good because he got the teacher. But uh, for me, it was like substandard teachers and hard to find them. And I think one of our one of our or one of the schools I was in just substituted math for French because they couldn't find the teachers for it. 
So I can understand a little bit of French just from traveling, but it's not where it should have been if they'd had a, the proper program in place. But uh, for, the, for other the other languages? languages, usually what I do is I learn about four or 500 words from a language. And then I just right. go, which is plenty, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. And like, for, even I, I find that even two hundred is good enough. Yeah, you can get by. It's, it's surprisingly easy. And then, for instance, for Russian, in addition, I learned how to read the alphabet quite quickly because that's kind of because yes. a lot of people use the Cyrillic alphabet. Yes, and it's amazing once you learn Cyrillic, then all of a sudden, all these the whole world opens up. You're like, oh my god, there's there you know supermarket or sport or you know oh. all sorts of things that looked incomprehensible before. They're like they're using the exact computer or something. Yeah, <laughs> it's all the yes, same. Yeah. So that that works pretty good. Yeah, I, I, I kind of yeah. you don't really need a, a whole lot of language, and especially when you're traveling, you get in more trouble if you know the language too well, because quite often the people that you meet are actually trying to scam you. So if you can if you can speak the language, they're just using that against you. And you're concentrating so much on trying to, like if you're trying to learn a language while you're traveling, that's difficult as well. Because then you're not focusing on someone's face or whether they're trying to rip you off. Instead, you're too much mm. focused on trying to remember words. And so you, you get into a lot more trouble that way. So it's, it's better just to have a few hundred words. We talked a little bit about the Saudi Arabia visa and the yeah. fact that it's opening up. Can you tell me a little bit about when you went through, well, you went several times to West and Central Asia, but how was the visa process? For Saudi Arabia? No, no. Uh, in general, for because I hear like I think it's Tajikistan. Or it's a, it's a kind of a hermit kingdom. It's kind of closed. It's kind of communist. I don't know what. Uh, Tajikistan is not that bad actually. So I, I managed to get. But isn't isn't all right? Hold on. But uh, isn't that the one that has hard. like a dictator? That's it. Sorry, Turkmenistan. That's yeah. what I meant. Um, so Turkmenistan, like, tell me about the visa process and how did you get in there and how the country was like because it seems like it's run by some sort of dictator who's kind of half loony or whatever. Yeah, it was, it was somewhat hard. I mean, I would, how I was doing Central Asia at the time was I was pretending to be a UN economic advisor and I had some papers for that. And then I, as a result, I was getting into UN uh, agencies and I was getting their internal visa acquisition people to process me as if I was working for the UN, which I wasn't. So that helped for a lot of them. But I noticed I kind of ran into a roadblock for um, Turkmenistan. And eventually I had to go through something called uh, stand tours. And if you pay them a couple hundred dollars, they assist with the process. And they kept asking for more and more um, uh, passport photos. And it was some ridiculous number. I was saying, what, what do you do? Like paper your walls with them? Like it was something ridiculous. Like 25 <laughs> of them. And but eventually I did it. And, I, and you have to arrange exactly where you're coming into the country. And I had to arrange that I was coming in on foot through northern Afghanistan. And, uh, wow. yeah, and, and luckily I managed to, uh, to get up there in time and to get across the bridge and meet the person. And, yeah, and there was someone, that, an that official waiting on the other side. And he was, um, he was apologizing for how long the process took. And I said, no, no, don't apologize. If Canada had a border with Afghanistan, there'd also be quite a lot of searching going on. Because <laughs> they, they had a, yeah, like a, a Turkmen woman and uh, quite a pretty one, actually. And she was in charge of the group of people searching me. And they searched extremely thoroughly, like running their thumb along the seam of everything in my backpack, like taking out everything and questioning me about it. And the more and more she was questioning about my lifestyle, you could see the frown deepening on her face. And finally she said, stop traveling, get married and have children, settle down. And I said, yes, ma'am, I'll get right on that. And she goes, okay, stamp, <laughs> let's me in. And, and have you followed her advice? No, <laughs> just carried on traveling. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's it's 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 amazing how many people in our society kind of force you or want to push you into conformity. I, how how do you resist that? I've just never done anything normal whatsoever. So I've I've never had a normal job. I've never you know I don't even have a resume. 
I don't own a suit. I just have clothes like this. So I've, I didn't even ask you, like, by the way, the, the most often asked question, which is sometimes I don't even think about it because I get asked it all the time. But what is your kind of profession or career-ish? I mean, maybe do you just clean toilets? or No, I would say the best way to describe it is whenever I run out of money, which is usually every five years, I just start a company, run it for a few months, make enough from that company, and then just cancel or sell the company and then do it again like five years later. And I always make sure it's a different thing each time to keep it interesting. So that's why I, that's what why I did been a, some of your What's some of your more interesting endeavors that you've done that, that, that were more lucrative or profitable? Yeah, I think I had four or five that were quite interesting. Some of them were, were less interesting. Like, for instance, I would you know buy gemstones in, in one place, a lot of them, and then through an area that has a lot of war, so it's possible to, to get a fairly good price on them. And then go somewhere where they're using these gemstones and sell it. That's an example of an uninteresting one. But an interesting one would be, like, for instance, when there was a Thai bot crisis, the Indonesian rupiah also lost 90% of its value. And I thought, oh, interesting. So I got on a plane to fly out there. And sure enough, it was on the verge of civil war. So trying to fly around the country, you'd have uh, you know, situations where the plane couldn't land because rioters are burning the airport. And you'd have like a lot of, um, you see like burning villages in the background where different villages are killing each other. And so a lot of the businessmen were fleeing. But I was coming in just at that time to look if there's anything that I could get an advantage from. And because it's a little bit like um, when you're trading currency, but you're like trading currency directly because you see something's dropped 90% in value. So you're trying to make a trade. <clears throat> so I come in with a whole heap of cash. So I think I had like fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 in cash at the time. And I was looking around for something to spend it on. And I found this guy who was a carver of wooden chickens. So, uh, and then they were really high quality wooden chickens. He had seven different designs. He was getting people who'd run them off almost completely, but he was doing quality control, making sure they were to his specifications. And when I asked him the price of them, it worked out to $1.50. So he's working away. I traveled around for a few months, came back and inspected. Okay, it's still good. So then I went traveling again. And finally, they're all done. I pay them off. And now I've got $50,000 worth of chickens. And they're, now they have to be sent to cross the ocean. So I, What? Yeah. So then, so then, you know, at certain times I think, oh, all my money is in, in wooden chickens crossing the ocean. And I'm sending them to sea. And once they arrive there, so now I've hardly done any work. Now, once they arrive there, I flew back. I talked to a woman who rented kiosk space in malls. And for $2,000, I got 20 days. And in those 20 days, I sold them all. And I was making time. Where? In, in Canada? Yeah. And then I'm making times four. Yeah. So I sold them in Vancouver mostly. And uh, okay. I sold them in like West Van Mall and Guilford Mall. So it's like a product that goes really quickly because I could price it just at $6. And it, probably the product should have been much more expensive, but I could clear it out fast. And people would buy them like they were hotcakes. So I made $150,000 profit in less than a month. How, the, how does this chicken look like? Is it the size of a real chicken? Yeah. So it's like a, a statue, like a painted statue, but really nicely sanded and aged. And they look really, really nice. I wish I had a photo of one. I have a photo of some of the old products I used to do, but... You didn't keep a single one, Mike? Well, I kept, I kept one at my mom's house, but after a while I heard that she gave it away or, or something. So that was gone. I was hoping I'd How get a unappreciative. photo. unappreciative. Yeah. But I, yeah. Maybe you need to go back and you got to go back and ask the same guy to make you another chicken. Well, I, I did. Well, I did the same thing with um, coffee tables. And uh, I was getting them for ten dollars, selling them for forty. And when I would go to try to wholesale them in North America, it's a mm, I don't know, it's a nice coffee table, but I don't know if I'd want to pay forty dollars for it. And I said it's not just a coffee table; it's a coffee coffee table because it's made out of coffee wood. So I made the coffee tables out of wood from the coffee trees because I found a plantation they were chopping down. So I bought all the wood for just firewood prices, 
got them made into coffee tables. And then I was selling coffee, coffee tables. And that one little stupid thing meant that they sold really quickly. So I wasn't trying to like overprice them anything. I'm just taking times four. You know, like, you know, for products, right. you have to have times two to even have a viable business, right? Well, you need, right. you need times four if you want to uh, be able to travel off it for years. Right, right. Actually, it's funny because my father was going, he had a company called Latin Ports, Latin Imports, effectively. And he would go to South America and Central America and buy a bunch of stuff like Panama hats for maybe a dollar each. And then he would come back and sell it for $10 for a Panama hat or, you know, he'd sell $5 wholesale. Anyway, it was, uh, ended up being a very profitable business for him. And it's because of that, that he was able to send me to college and all that kind of stuff. So it is, there is a great arbitrage opportunity and it's, it's the oldest business in the world. I mean, it's the, the idea of trading, you know, go someplace and go to uh, some guy who's making a stone tool. In fact, they even found, I think in Tanzania, like quarries, uh, where, uh, these hunter gatherers like a million years ago were like making a ton of tools a lot of tools, and they 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 surmise that this must have been a market for people selling um, stone tools or uh, what are they called the uh, arrows, whatever it is, uh, or hammers that they would make because there were so many. They said that it doesn't make sense for one person to have them all. And now for a quick commercial break from our sponsor. Do you want to take a life-changing travel adventure, but you either hate planning or you don't know where to start? Tour Radar is a trusted online marketplace that helps you find, compare, and book multi-day tours that will expand your horizons through life-enriching travel experiences. Just type in a region you've always wanted to visit or your preferred travel style, and Tour Radar will do the rest. And right now, WanderLearn listeners can visit Tour Radar for a chance to win an amazing travel contest. Every month, there's a new contest. Enter to win at tourradar.com slash wanderlearn. And now back to the show. But the thing is, you can't do that anymore as much. So what I found is banking is now good after that, because um, now you can bank everywhere on earth. And that spoils the ability to go around with a big pile of cash and buy things and sell things. Because now that everyone can do this through banking and through credit cards and things like that, you have a lot more businessmen are brave enough to go to these areas on earth where otherwise you get a good deal. And they, of course, take down the potential profit till eventually it's not really good enough. I see. So what are you doing? What is your, your latest business that you're involved in? So that's why I did a book last time. And now my latest one is I thought, okay, we're writing that book was kind of fun. So now I'm doing a fictional book because I did this nonfiction book about my travel life. But I thought, well, I've never done a fiction. So I've just completed a novel that's like a murder mystery set in the future. And I'm just doing the last bit of editing for it. So I think it'd be fun to have like a, a fictional story. Where is it set? Uh, it's, it's, it's set in the future. I wouldn't want to say too much about it. Like it's set several hundred years in the future. And I can't say too much without giving it away. But uh, I'm hoping to be able to sell it because I've got it. Uh, it's 25 chapters. I've got them all written. And now I'm just doing the final editing for each one. And it's probably two or three days of work for, for each. I've gone to chapter 15 in terms of editing. So I've got maybe another month and I'm done. And then I'll try to sell it off. One of the things that we talked about when we first started to do this recording is the fact that you had to wait a while. And I was thinking to myself, you know, as a traveler, as a world traveler, as you are, Mike, you are used to waiting for African buses to fill up and East Asian buses to fill up and all these other things that you have to wait and wait and wait. And so and during those waiting times, you have a lot of time to think. And I think that's why I love talking to travelers because they often have like profound thoughts because they have so much idle time to actually think, which the modern 
human being doesn't have a time to think anymore because you're we live in a distraction society so i'm curious about your thoughts of the future do you think let's say setting your novel in the future do you think that we're going to be amortal in the future i don't know if you know the term amortal versus immortal i think it's very possible because i i follow the science quite a lot for what's happening with ai and things and the way it's going it seems pretty clear to me that we're going to reverse engineer the brain quite quickly and it, uh, some of the larger companies, and I bet you some of the uh, larger governments are working on this as well. And I don't really see how, like if you look at it, our smartphones now are about as smart as a, um, almost as smart as a cat in some cases. Oh, for really? The, okay. the better chips. So it's getting pretty close to a human level. And you, I don't know if you read, but there was someone was studying the um, occipital lobe for, for visual processing. And there's six mysterious layers but they managed to figure out two of them. And there's only like a couple teams working on this. So the, the more people they have working, eventually they find out what all the circuitry is doing in the brain. And including so, consciousness, they found out there's a particular neuron that's associated with it. And if you were to trace the connections of it, you see what those circuits are doing. So I think it won't be long before we have uh, robots that'll be uh, quite smart, or maybe even a smartphone that could be as smart as a human, or at least usefully intelligent. That is uh, Ray Kurzweil's vision as well. Yeah, no, I think he goes too far because he's a, a little bit too positive about it. I think he doesn't really see that there's negatives as well. But I think it's inevitable in any case. So maybe he can be the positive guy. Some other guys like Musk, for instance, can be more negative about it. But it's happening. Do you think that once we are able to reverse engineer the brain, then we're effectively immortal in that case? Not amortal, by the way, for those who don't know, listening is is that you can live forever as long as you're not killed by quote-unquote natural causes. And so, in other words, as long as you can keep replacing your organs, you can keep changing your heart, your liver, your brain cells, et cetera, and, and replace them forever. But obviously, if somebody takes a gun and shoots you, or if you fall off a big cliff, you're still going to die. So you're not immortal. An immortal person, you literally just could not kill him no matter what you do. But But if we are able to reverse engineer the brain, then we effectively become immortal because you can, or at least almost immortal, because I suppose if you destroy all the copies of your brain, then you're finally killed. Yeah. Well, I think it makes massive changes to society. And I wrote an essay about this for a military intelligence magazine a while ago. But for instance, imagine that you have quite good AI, so it can replace most human workers. Well, at that point, how you determine who's the most powerful country would be you want to have as low a population as possible and as large a land area as possible for getting access to minerals. Because, you know, minerals are something you can't make. They're, make, they're made in stellar explosions. So you can't go and say, make, my, make more gold or make more iron. You know, you, you just, either you have it or you don't. So uh, I think for, for countries, you'd want to be someone like Canada. And for someone like China, you'd be quite poor because you, you'd have 1.3 billion people to take care of. And whereas for China or for Canada, you'd only have 38 million or 37 million or whatever Canada's at at the point. And you have all these minerals that you could use to get things built because if you have unlimited robot workers, you can just tell them to make more robot workers. You can have much as much factory space as you want and they can manage all that. And you can just have them make you know more robots or more consumer goods or whatever it is. So really what you want is a non-poisoned, like pollution-free, clean wilderness environment with a minimum number of humans in it to be the most powerful country. And this goes with militarily as well because all the fighting would be done by drones and robots. So the more minerals and area you have, the better. And the lower population you have, the better, because you have less to defend them. Because, they, you know, the humans are almost be like what they are in a job site now, where you don't want any human who's outside of a machine, because they're just a liability. They'll get run over by something. So same thing if you're trying to defend a country. 
This is why I've been kind of advocating that Canada and the United States join as one country. We can call it Canada or Canada something. Anyway, but yeah, just keep it Canada. I don't care. I, I, I'm happy to give up the name. I don't even like the name the United States of America because it implies that it's the con- it uses the word the continent of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, which of course includes the Americas. So uh, the whole thing is very confusing. Yeah. Just yeah, know, so the name bit off. It, it yeah, it's terrible. Um, so so I, I don't even like that we're called Americans because then you know, well, Canadians are Americans, Mexicans are Americans, and Central Americans. Yeah. Theoretically, except a lot of them reject it. So some of them really want the name American, some of them really reject it. It becomes complicated. Pretty great. right. Right, right. So therefore, if we just unite the two countries, Canada and America, and we call the new country just Canada. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, so we all, so people in Minnesota, people in Texas are now Canadians. Then it simplifies all these things. And we have, you know, joined forces. We've become the biggest country in the world. It's, it's great. And, and, and culturally, mm-hmm. I don't see the thing. But the problem is, of course, the Canadians. That's the problem is that I think that they would just, even if you give them, you know, keep the name Canada, they would still say, no, we don't want to be united with your stupid United well, States of America. The, I think that lately, I think that Canadians are upset about gun policy in the U.S. and a few other things. So maybe the amount of um, fundamentalist Christians and gun policy. Now, I don't think it's as bad as, as what they would say, but a lot of Canadians think that uh, guns are out of control in the U.S. and there's a, a whole bunch of Christians trying to outlaw law abortion and things like that. Like, I'm not an expert on it because I don't spend much time in Canada, but uh, I think that that's the general feeling. So if that went away, it would be easier to make a larger country for sure. So they're obsessed about our gun, our, our, our gun, that we just, but wait. Yeah, because the, the media goes on about it, right? But, but, but what about, don't, don't Canadians have the right to bear arms as well? No. And Canadian, Canadians have a lot of guns, but they don't really have a right to bear arms. And I think one of the candidates. So how do you get a gun? How do you get a gun in Canada? I think you've got to have an FEC, which is like a firearms, like a, a special license just for being able to buy firearms. And I think it's more involved. Like I had one a long time ago and it was just like filling out a form back then. But I think now it's something more involved. And if you want something like a handgun, it's quite difficult to get. And they're starting to ban certain kinds of rifles, especially ones that have scary names or they have black color. Yeah, well, that, I mean, black, I mean, definitely you can kill a lot more people with a black colored rifle. Yeah, I because mean, there's actually sure. quite a lot of ignorance with regard to guns. So for instance, I, I've owned a lot of guns in my life and they're actually all... Um, like a, a semi-auto rifle is a semi-auto rifle, pretty much. But uh, but if you talk to someone, aren't they all like a semi? Who who the hell is carrying a non-semi-automatic? Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I've had a bolt action before, but uh, but yeah, but most rifles are semi-auto, and they're they're all identical. They're all interchangeable, right? I think people are worried about this incredibly rare event where you have school shootings and stuff, and I think that's more a cultural thing where the schools are perhaps getting too big, and there's all these subcultures that are getting perhaps too violent, striving against each other within the schools. Certain people get feel alienated and they, they go nuts. I mean, I, I you know I can't know the exact reason for it. But I know that you know Americans and Canadians used to be have a seething amount of rifles and handguns in the past, and they didn't used to do these things. So something's going on with the culture. But uh, you know, people like easy fixes, so they think if you got rid of certain kinds of guns, you could solve the problem. Now, if you get rid of all guns, you could probably lower the incidence of it. But getting rid of certain kinds of guns with certain names that are functionally equivalent to the other guns probably won't make a difference. Going back to one of your ideas that you talked about, Mike, which is this idea that you can take um, that, you know, stars are the only place where heavy metals and heavy minerals were made yeah. uh, from from supernovas and that kind of stuff, which is true. But in the far future, we should be able to use nanotechnology to 
change relatively simple things. You could just take hydrogen and helium and just simple um, atoms, simple molecules, and combine them to basically turn water into gold or whatever, in other words. I think there's too much energy input, too much energy required for that. But but hold on, but that gets to the whole point, which is maybe the rich countries will be the ones, let's say, in the Sahara where they have abundant solar energy because we're using just a fraction of the solar energy. I don't, I don't think you can get around it that way. I think to, to fuse like that becomes, uh, especially if you're going heavier than iron, you actually use a lot of energy to go anything heavier than iron. So iron's the most stable element. But if you have, let's say, a ton of useless energy, in other words, you just, energy is so cheap because either we have fusion or because we're, we've finally been able to improve our solar uh, energy utilization, then all of a sudden, if energy is almost free or super cheap, then doing wasting it, quote unquote, wasting it to transform one. The quantities are too another. small. If you if you run the numbers, the quantities are too small. But what you could do is go out and get some. Like in the asteroid belt, there's tons of asteroids made of you know tons of platinum and gold and all these really useful minerals. You can go lasso one of those and tug it back. So you you right. could get minerals if you're willing to be a bit more spacefaring than what we are now. But in terms of making right. it from solar power, it's just such a slow process. Like you would, you would wait uh, years and years and years and you get a few grams. What, is, what are some of the things that you think nobody's thinking about in the future regarding, to, let's say, AI? Because I, I vacillate, Mike, because I'm writing my book about Africa right now. Yeah. And I'm constantly thinking about like the impact of AI. Because on the one hand, I'm very optimistic about Africa because Africa has been improving i think on the whole in general it's been getting wealthier and and diseases going down and and their health is getting better and all on all sorts of metrics there's yeah. less starvation on and on it's generally good news more or less in the continent but on the other hand as you pointed out they're going to have four billion africans going up yeah. for one billion and they have they're not going to benefit from what, say, Southeast Asia and Asia, East Asia did with regard to the manufacturing revolution because when AI robots come and just robotics in general, there's no need to put that stuff in Africa. You could put it in anywhere. You could put it in the United States. Instead of human resources, it's a human burden because we're, we're in like a kind of neocolonialism now where we're trying to steal human resources. So that's why we have so much immigration is because countries like Canada want to increase the wealth of Canada in order to be able to provide more services to um, bribe the electorate, essentially, to keep various governments in power. And as a result, you have to grow the economy. And the easiest way to do that is to steal skilled people or young people from other countries. So right now we're kind of like in a reverse neo-colonial regime. But after AI gets too strong, they'll probably then humans will become a bit of a burden and you wouldn't want to do that anymore. Right. So you're basically suggesting that the rich countries are encouraging brain drain from yeah, the poor Yeah, we're brain countries. draining massively. Like, for instance, going around Africa, you probably noticed talking to people who work in um, hospitals and stuff like that. They can hardly train a nurse. As soon as they train one, like a country like Canada, well, you won't, we'll take her. So, right. you, you know, they, can, they couldn't even, like I found hospitals that in the jungle that were just shut down. And it's because they couldn't get any kind of medical, medical personnel. As soon as they train anyone, they're gone. And if it's not the West, then it's like the it's like uh, the Middle East, because you know. Play- yeah, that was that was one of the frustrating things I would see sometimes in Africa. I'd go to a remote village, and there would be some volunteer from some rich country who's there, either from Canada or New Zealand or America, or whatever, or Europe, and they would be there, and I would be wondering, like, wait a second. Kenya or whatever the country is, is producing lots of doctorates and lots of people who have medical degrees and nurses. Why don't 
any of them come out to this little poor village? Why do we have to send somebody from 10,000 kilometers away to do yeah, this? Why don't they do Because we plunder them. I mean, the thing is, <clears throat> like, it would have been very hard for the United Kingdom where they had, uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution. Imagine if there were such things as Martians. And the Martians came in, and whenever the United Kingdom tra- tried to train a scientist or a medical, you know, <laughs> expert, the Martians go, you will take that, we'll take that, you know, keep sucking them out. Well, then you find that the country can't develop. So we're, we're right. slowing down the third world quite a lot by um, absorbing their people. But at some point, we'll just ignore the third world completely once we develop AI and, yeah, and this, robots this that are able to outperform. So we've been plundering them for a while in our neo-colonial regime, which, you know, it's, it's unavoidable. I mean, you know, of course, just the way things go, it's, it's unavoidable that we want to plunder them because, you know, we, we would prefer to have more nurses and things like that. But, you know, at a certain point, it'll reverse and we'll ignore them. But I think in the meantime, like right. from our point of view, like whenever young people ask where they should go to do business in the world, I tell them Africa. And I, I had uh, one friend from Brazil. He, he felt the political situation in Brazil wasn't that good. He's wondering where to go next for his for doing his um uh, he did a lot of stuff over the internet and, and things like that, or like telecom stuff. And I said, go to Nigeria. And he did, and he's done very well now. So he's made millions of dollars just in a year. And I think that's quite that I agree with that advice quite well, because Africa has a tremendous amount of opportunity if you're willing to put up with all the headaches yeah. that they often... Yeah, so I told them never front anything to anyone ever. So almost behave as if you're dealing drugs, basically. <laughs> like if you're selling crack cocaine, like yes. behave like that. Because if you, you know, if someone says, I want you to do some e-advertising for me, $5,000 worth, you know, I'll pay you half now, half later. You'd have to say, no, it has to be all the payment at the exact time that I deliver the product. Because you, you can't... Uh, right. For some reason, they discount the future massively. So Africans in general, I think it's because it's such an unstable environment that if they can get some sort of advantage, but they can just disappear with the money, they will. But if, if you keep that in mind. It's so true what you say. It's so true what you say. And it's very frustrating. It's what retards the growth of the continent because they just don't trust each other and they, they take advantage. It's, I've always said the hardest thing to do is once you give money to an African is to get that yeah. money back. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think it's... But uh, I think that that was common all around. And I think that's part of the reason why they're going religious. So you wonder why they're becoming like very Muslim or very Christian. And it's to try to enter into some group that might be slightly more trustworthy. Because really their biggest problem is trust. And if you think about it, debt is trust. And currency itself is trust. So, you know, they're, they're trying to generate wealth, which is to generate, uh, you know, intersocial trust between each other. And it's a slow process. But in the meantime, you know, you can come and if you're, if you're a foreigner, you might be have a little bit of an edge there in terms of being trusted. And then if you don't over trust anyone else, I think you can do very well at business there. Now, what do you think about Bitcoin? Speaking about trust, it's a trustless ter- currency, as they say. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I, you know, I never invested in anything like that. I just think it's too uh, unpredictable at the moment. So if you're someone with so much money that you don't mind that if you lose whatever you put in, then go for it. But uh, I always felt it was too risky. Are are you optimistic about the future of Africa? Because I just I I vary. I mean, in general, I'm optimistic, but boy, when I think about the the future and the changes coming and the demographics, see, I'm extremely optimistic in a strange way. So people have in mind certain things about Africa, and usually what comes to mind is wildlife and nature. Well, I would say forget all that, cancel all that. The nature will be destroyed, the wildlife will be destroyed, but for the people, they'll do quite well. So they'll, they'll probably cap out at four billion. They'll destroy their wildlife kind of the way the Europeans have. But, you know, they'll develop a culture around and they'll probably develop some nicer cities or nicer places to live. 
So it'll be like a human continent instead of a natural continent. So, if, but you know, you know, humans often do this. Like for instance, if we talk to some ice age hunters and we were to say, or they were to say to us, describe the future. We would describe it and they'd say, well, where, where's the mammoths? Where's the saber-toothed tigers? You know, where's the, the runs of gigantic runs of salmon coming up the rivers? And we say, oh, that, all that stuff's gone. Well, they would think that we destroyed the future. But uh, they wouldn't understand so much that we decided to get rid of animals and we focused more on having comfortable uh, houses to live in and uh, <laughs> other kinds of amenities. So I think the same thing's going to happen with Africa. They'll destroy their nature, which is unfortunate. But it's unavoidable. And then instead they'll have people who are having a better standard of living. And Europe did the same thing. Absolutely. No, I, I agree with your perspective there. And, and it is unavoidable. And I think a lot of times when I'm listening to books about the future, especially once they plow out to 100 years and you look at Star Trek and all that kind of stuff, this whole idea that we're going to still be biological creatures, to me, it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It just seems that eventually we're all going to become cyborgs. Do you agree with I, that? I or? think we'll probably pass through a, a stage in which we're kind of pets for very intelligent machines for a while. And we might even be bred toward cuteness at that point, the way we've bred, you know, dogs and cats toward that. So I think that we'll have like a short golden age. Then we'll start morphing. Like, like I think, for instance, in the past, probably your strength was the most important thing for you. Like if you're back in like Viking era or something, your strength as a warrior. Then for a while, it was intelligence. But I think we've seen peak geek. So I think that your, your intelligence is probably going to become a little bit less important. And I think in the future now, it'll be your how good looking you are, how like your charismatic ability to um, influence people. These will probably become the, uh, the prime uh, prerequisite now coming into the future. So we're probably starting about 20 years from now. Really? That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I was cu more curious about the fact that whether you think that, okay, one way to extend our life, which is of course the, the Holy grail for so much of humanity and, and, and thought and, and, and myth and legend is this idea of, becoming immortal and one way to do that is to re constantly replace our organs and and like you mentioned before the reverse engineering the brain is the ultimate because then you really extend it but i'm going a bit further which is maybe we'll get to a point where people will do just like we have elective surgery to change our eyes we'll just go cybernetic eyes and just we'll we'll replace our our, our normal heart with an artificial. well you could do it now if, if you had 300 million you could do it now. So I actually priced it out with a neuroscientist friend of mine from uh, Florida. And we're looking at various advances in certain um, ultra high tech light microscopes and ver various kind of gels that swell up when they take in liquid. And with a combination of these advances, we priced out exactly what it would cost to download your brain entirely. So, you know, every single synapse and cell. And what you would have to do is you would take out your brain, you slice it into pieces and then each of these pieces you soak in a um, material that's almost like it's like that gel that you have in potting soil where if you put water on it, it really swells up hundreds of times more than what it was before. Well, you would you would tag the brain with fluorescent tags enough where it would kind of sparkle everywhere under a certain color of light. And it'd be almost like the way you can see a Christmas tree, even if you only see the lights of the Christmas tree and you can't see the tree. Well, you'd have these little specklings of fluorescent tags all over the synapses, all over the uh, cells. Then you replace the liquid in the brain with this uh, gel. You put water on it so it uh, expands in size 100 or 200 times in size. Now it, you can come within range of being able to resolve even the synapses with a high-tech light microscope that are like a quarter mil a pot. And so we went through and calculated if you had 10 years to work and you had a team of several hundred people and how many microscopes you'd need. So for 300 million, you could have your entire brain recorded synapse by synapse. So, you know, everything's recorded there. 
And as a result, once the tech is high enough to simulate a brain, which is coming probably in 20, 30 years, you could appear alive again as a computer brain. So it's doable now. But if it were doable now, why is not anybody well, doing okay, it? Here's the, the problem with that is who knows. wants to be a disembodied brain in a computer? And also there, there could be there could be downsides to that as well, right? <laughs> so if it's a... Right, but but we will do it, I mean, eventually. Yeah, but who wants to be first, though? So, you know, I, so, you know someone can do it, but what if, okay, what if um, people who are making robots slaves decide, okay, we need a brain for these robot slaves? Oh, I know, this guy was dumb enough to uh, have his brain downloaded, and it's somewhere on the internet. Uh, so we'll just use him as the mind of each of these robot slaves that we build afterward. You know, then you'd be in a philosophically bad position anyway, depending on what's your view of what's a self or not a self. So you can see it's kind of risky to do it. So let's project a couple of hundred years in the future. Just imagine you and I are not just travelers, but we're time travelers. And we just jump into the future, let's say 200 years, 300 years in the future. And we're on planet Earth, assuming we haven't nuked ourselves into oblivion. What do we see? Do we see that most of the creatures that are walking around, the Homo sapien descendants, are they cybernetic? Are they biological tissue? What is it? I think we won't slide as much into being cyborgs so quickly. So I think for like we'll have some cybernetic enhancements, but I, I imagine that we'll go genetic first. You know, there, there's a lot you can do to clean up a genome. Like we have a lot of endogenous retroviruses hidden within the DNA that could be taken out. Now, you wouldn't want to take out all of them because some of them are involved in the um, uh, branching of nerve cells when they're trying to build a brain. You know, so some of these, these uh, viruses have been co-opted. Or same thing with building the immune system. Sort of the viral randomizer has been co-opted into that to try to fight other viruses or other bacteria. So you have to be careful what you take out. But, you know, a lot of these endogenous retroviruses, you know, they're suspected that when they reactivate, they might cause AMS, you know, and, and other illnesses like that. So there are these viruses that can... Uh, reactivate within the genome. So you want to cut out any of those that have not been co-opted and made useful to a human. And also a lot of it's just old garbage. Do you, so you think that in a few hundred years in the future, most people will still be biological? I think that they will, but they'll be genetically modified quite a lot. And I think they'll have some modifications maybe to their eyes and a few other things. Like for instance, you could, you could reactivate the old um, four color system instead of the three. Because humans have a, quite a poor three color system. Because we went down to two when we went nocturnal as mammals. Then when we came back out into the light as, as uh, primates, it was too hard to recover the old um, third and fourth primary because they had been deactivated enough that they had some mutations in them. So instead, we kind of just duplicated the second primary and then changed the structure a little bit so it's, it's not perfectly placed on the spectrum to give us 100% three-color vision, but we have like kind of piss-poor three-color vision. But you could give us like perfect three-color vision and even bring in the fourth primary. You just have to take it from like a reptile or bird where it still has a proper form without the mutations that have accumulated get rid of the garbage one we have in our genome anyway and put in the one that works and you know it was i heard that an octopus i heard an octopus eye is pretty well engineered oh that could be quite nice yeah i, I haven't read about an octopus eye i can't remember the details but basically the uh, the homo sapien or the primate eye has something about the eye kind of reversed oh kind of yeah back ass yeah we have the, the things come across from fovea centralis i think so they're, they're actually visible, makes a blind spot. Maybe that's it. I can't remember the detail, but I remember there was something about the human eye that if you were to actually engineer, it's kind of like proof that there is no intelligent design because the eye of the human being is poorly designed compared to the eye of an octopus, which was a co-evolutionary But uh, we, we got torqued as well. So we, we passed through a stage that was kind of like a flounder. 
and then we uh, got twisted around so our, our optic nerves don't even connect up to the proper sign. So a little bit inefficient. That Maybe is- that... Right. There's, there's, there's that and probably other things. Anyway, it's, it's just an interesting topic. But what about the, tra- the future of travel, Mike? Uh, do, do you think that virtual reality will become so real that in the end, there's no need to go to Saudi, get on a plane and go to Saudi Arabia and see the thing because you just plug in the virtual reality thing and it's so freaking Yeah, it could even real. make it more real than real. That, it feel more real there virtually. There, or at least, or at the very least, more exhilarating. Like all of a sudden, you have the power to fly, or the power to like break through a window, or whatever to do what you want. And so it's even more exciting because you can do things that you would never be able to do in the real world. So why the fuck would you ever get on a train, plane to go to Saudi Arabia? All the cultures are sort of turning into one culture. So like these places where you like that's why I like going to a place like Japan because very very Japanese. But if you go like the the Anglosphere right. now, is all converging. So if you go to Auckland or you go to Sydney, or you go to Vancouver, like you'll find fairly similar cities culturally. And right, and that makes virtual reality more interesting because you could actually go to a city that was, let's say, in China in the 13th mm-hmm. century and just explore that. I mean, that would be so much more interesting than going to China today. Um, and by the way, I agree with you about Japan because I've always told people that out of the 120 countries that I've been to, Japan is the most yeah. unique and the most wacky yeah. of all it's because they're in a way they're they represent global diversity because they're not diverse whereas if you if, if you try <laughs> to push diversity and you have like all the races and cultures come together and mix it's kind of interesting for a short time but then they kind of merge and then eventually everyone's kind of the same so it's almost like if you, you stir together a, um, a bunch of paint eventually it ends up with just one color and I think that's the process is starting now for this. But what I'm trying to get at, Mike, is will people from the 24th century look at Mike Baum as a relic of a bygone era of a guy who actually got onto a boat, a plane, a train or whatever to actually physically go somewhere? And you're going like that Mike <laughs> Baum guy. What a you know, like like we look at like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. 18th century travelers and the crazy shit that they did in order just to get to Venezuela, they had to take a boat and, you know, nowadays we get a plane, et cetera. So will you be, there will be a lot of that going on, but I, I'm already a relic though. Like I've spent years and years living alone in the wilderness without speaking, which is kind of strange. Like no one does that anymore. Yeah, that is weird. I didn't know that about you. When did, when did you spend? Cause I've, yeah, when I was extremely young or sometimes when, uh, when I would go to a country like the Congo where there's, you know, there's a possibility for that. So I would just like to go up into the wilderness and just survive by, uh, you know, hunting antelope or uh, in the case of Canada, you know, fishing or snaring uh, rabbits and birds. You did that in the Congo? Yeah, I I went to live with the Bambuti Pygmy tribe. So they they were... Okay, for how long were uh, you there? I was there for, it wasn't that long. It was like, I think I had a month visa and I used a lot of it for living with pygmies. But with Canada, of course, I could stay as long as I wanted. So when I was quite young, I would go up sometimes for a full summer. I think I've done two full summers as a very young man. Yeah, so I, I would speak to anyone, just exists by living off the land, wouldn't see any humans. And I'd enter this mental state that's kind of like a bush mode. Like there's actually two, two sides to human nature. And most humans are only aware of one. It's the one that we use when we're in the camp. But it's another one when you're alone in the forest, you know, existing as a hunter-gatherer. And you can flip into that mode if you're long enough. It takes about 65 days to fully flip, and then you're kind of locked in. It's interesting. 65 days, not 60. Well, I know a lot of people who've done this. <laughs> it's interesting. So we're yeah, so precise. So I, is it, I was why averaging, 65? so I have a lot of friends who do stuff like this, and I was averaging. Okay. Like, right. I found this, like, 20 to 24 for, the like, the first major effect, and then, then you know, something in the 40s for the second effect. So, you know, it seemed like human minds flip at about the same rate. Okay. And what, and what do you think about the 
Christopher McCandless, I think is his name for Into the Wild, who actually went off. And I think it was Alaska where he went and eventually Oh, died. yeah, that's kind of weird because I was actually starving almost to death in the forest at the same time he was. But, but I survived because I had a lot more bush skill. He had no skill at all, and he didn't really take any effort to learn any, unfortunately. So I think that's part of the reason that he died. I mean, they, they figured out the whole reason that he, he died now <clears throat> with the plant he was eating that he shouldn't have been. It was that root. Yeah, but it was a potato. It was a poisonous potato. Yeah, and he was potato. eating the seeds instead of the root. So the seeds are poisonous. And how they figured this out is actually in Ukraine, there were some Nazi scientists in a concentration camp, and they were doing like weird experiments on prisoners. And they had taken seeds of the European equivalent to that plant, and they were feeding them to prisoners in their concentration camp and letting them suffer. And so there was actually some doctors that studied the people who were having, who were affected by these seeds. So there was actually some medical literature about it. So it wasn't, it wasn't an alkaloid like some people were saying, it was something else, but it, it is a poison that uh, reduces or eliminates your ability to absorb nutrition. So Israel had hundreds or thousands of people affected with this. So they had, they had like a medical uh, knowledge of how to deal with it. Mike, where can people learn more about you at your website? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I have a, a Mike Spencer Bound website. Um, I have a few essays that I've put out as well, but um, I'll put links to them. I think they're on my website as well. So probably that's the best place for it. Okay. And then we'll go ahead and link to that and we'll link to, and when your book is coming out is in 2021. Well, so my, for my novel, uh, probably next year, but I'll see. I haven't gone to shop it around yet. But for my uh, book on traveling, uh, that was, yeah, that's already out. Yeah, The World's Most Traveled. Mike, I could talk to you for another few hours if you ever come in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, we'll definitely be in touch. It's been a huge pleasure. I called you uh, just now. I didn't know jack shit about you, basically. And, and I just said, you know what? He's a traveler. We're just <laughs> going to talk. And here we're going on and on and uh, having a great time. So it was a great pleasure talking with you. And I definitely want to meet you face to face at some point in the future. Okay, excellent. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel technology and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. Tour Radar sponsored this episode and is also sponsoring an amazing travel contest for the WanderLearn audience. Every month, enter to win a new Tour Radar contest for a chance to win a life-changing travel adventure. To toss your name into the hat, just go to tourradar.com slash wanderlearn. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one more reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash FTAPON. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now, five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the Wander Learn podcast. Two, don't forget to download it. Three, share it. Four, review it, and then five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is France Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.